Tell us the news from the hill. Ah, well, the news. Why, for instance, is this thus? And what is the reason for this thusness? Welcome to Between the Lines, a podcast about sports and the law, with your host, me, Gabe Feldman, director of the Tulane Sports Law Program, co-founder of the Tulane Center for Sport, lawyer, consultant, person, woman, man, camera, TV. This is a very special episode of the podcast, part one of Why Is This Thus? As I have said since day one of this podcast, a full three weeks ago, you can't really understand what's going on in the sports world unless you understand the legal issues going on behind the scenes. I am going to try to make sense of all the craziness going on in college sports right now. 76 FBS schools are still planning to play. 54 are not. Some players have opted out because they think it's too dangerous to play. Other players are hoping to play because they think it's safer to play than not to play. Nebraska is threatening to leave the Big Ten. What does it all mean? And why am I yelling? It's time to find out. Why is this thus? Here we go. For part one of this podcast, I'm going to fly solo, but I've got a very special guest joining me for part two. And I want to set the table by making it clear that I'm not going to make a prediction about whether we're going to have any college football this fall. I'll leave that to the medical professionals and the university presidents and the athletic directors. But I will note that one of the NCAA's chief medical advisors said this when asked about going forward with fall sports. Quote, we have a serious problem. I feel like the Titanic. We have hit the iceberg and we're trying to make decisions of when the band should play, unquote. Probably not a great sign if you're hoping for college football this fall. But I'm here to talk about some of the underlying issues that are shaping the decisions that we are seeing unfold in college football. The assumption is that potential legal liability is driving many of these decisions, So I'm going to answer some of the most commonly asked questions I've received over the last few weeks on the legal issues. I've got a long list of really good questions from Twitter and other places, and I'll try to get through as many as I can. And I want to start with a general point. I would urge all of you not to trust anyone who answers any questions in this area with certainty right now. There is no certainty other than uncertainty. There are just too many unknowns, both in science and the law, to give definitive answers to most of the questions that are being asked. The NCAA recently announced that they've canceled all fall championships for Division I sports. Division II and Division III have pretty much canceled all sports weeks ago. The Power Five football conferences are split. We are all flying blind right now. So be wary of anyone who says there is a 100% chance of anything happening. The only thing to be more wary about is if somebody says there's a 110% chance. Okay, let's start with the first question. This one is from Dan W. in New Orleans. All right, shout out to my home city of New Orleans. Here's Dan's question. Two-part question. First, are the schools that are in conferences that are still planning to play requiring their athletes to sign COVID-19 waivers? Second, if so, are those waivers enough to protect the schools from liability for any COVID-related harm suffered by the athletes? 
Great question and one that I'm seeing a lot. The answer to the first part is no. Earlier this summer, some schools, including SMU, did require their players to sign COVID-19 waivers to begin working out and practicing. And there was significant backlash against those schools. In early August, the NCAA banned schools from requiring athletes to sign these types of waivers. So no COVID waivers allowed for football or any sport that goes on this fall. Part two of the question, though, if athletes did sign waivers, would they actually protect the schools from liability if a player gets seriously ill from COVID? The answer here is a big fat maybe for a few different reasons that I'll run through quickly. First, it depends on the specific facts of the case. If the school acted recklessly or intentionally, it's really unlikely that the waiver would protect them. For example, if a coach blatantly disregards the school's COVID protocols and physical distance requirements and organizes a team yodeling contest in a small room with no masks, no windows or ventilation, it's pretty unlikely that any waiver would protect the school from that type of reckless, though perhaps entertaining, conduct. We might have a different answer if the school were strictly following their protocols and, for example, held all their yodeling contests remotely. Uh, Second, the answer can vary from state to state. Some states are less willing to enforce waivers than others, and there's no way to answer the question with any certainty unless you know the state, the language of the specific waiver, and again, the facts and circumstances that led to the illness. And third, even if the waivers are generally enforceable in the particular state, a court might be less willing to enforce it here for two reasons. One, because it might be perceived that the athletes had no real choice but to sign the waiver and had no ability to negotiate the terms of the waiver. So if it presented as a take it or leave it, it might be seen as what courts call a contract of adhesion and not be enforced. And then two, they might be seen as against public policy and public health. To prevent a college athlete from suing for harm caused by a school that is putting on a contact sport in the middle of a contact illness pandemic. Let's take another question. This one is from Dan W. in New Orleans. Hmm. Two in a row for Dan. Lucky day. Dan asks. If schools can't require athletes to sign waivers, what can they do to protect themselves or limit their legal liability? Well, here's one obvious thing the schools can do, and the only thing that will eliminate the risk of legal liability for playing an intercollegiate football game during a pandemic, and that is not to play intercollegiate football during a pandemic. Assuming they do want to play, and assuming someone does get sick, the best the schools can hope for is to take measures that will limit their legal exposure because it will be virtually impossible, not 100%, but virtually impossible to eliminate it. So how can they limit their legal risk? Well, let me sum it up quickly here. The short answer is for the schools to take a few steps. First, strictly follow the best COVID protocols recommended by the medical professionals. Two, educate the college athletes about the protocols and the risks of playing football. And then three, give the athletes the option to opt out of playing while still maintaining their scholarship. Now, why would that help? The argument is that the athlete 
knowingly assumed the risk of playing football if you follow all of those steps. Would that be enough to protect the schools? Again, the answer is maybe, but it would certainly help the athletes and their families make informed decisions about their participation and provide some legal cover in the unfortunate but maybe inevitable scenario where a player does get sick and sues. And by the way, this is what many universities and K through 12 schools are doing for their students who are going to be in person for class this fall. If you're a student or a parent of a student who has the option of returning to in-person classes, you might have been asked to sign an acknowledgement form in order to attend school that spells out the protocols the school is requiring and the risks of COVID and likely gives you the option of being in-person or remote. And again, if you choose to go in-person, you acknowledge those risks. Those types of acknowledgement forms, which are not banned by the NCAA, may ultimately be what provides the schools their best protection from lawsuits. And of course, some schools and many businesses are still lobbying Congress for liability protection against COVID-related lawsuits. But we'll see how that shakes out. Next question. This one is from Dan W. in New Orleans. Dan is apparently a very inquisitive fellow. I guess maybe I could have just called Dan and talked to him directly. That that might have made more sense now that I think about it. Oh, well, here's his question. If you had the ability to erase certain buzzwords from people's vocabularies, what words would you get rid of first? Wonderful, wonderful question. I have a long list, and I'm going to do a mini pod segment on this at some point soon. But let me start with three here. And I wonder all the time, what words or phrases did we rely on before so many people started overusing these? The first one is robust. I only want to hear the word robust if you're describing the flavor of wishbone Italian dressing. Second, all the feels. Please stop with all the all those. Third is the use of the word literally to mean figuratively. I know it's an accepted second definition, but please stop using it. Your head is not literally exploding right now because of all the feels. Language is hard enough as it is. We don't have to add a meaning to a word that is the exact opposite of its original meaning. Okay, that felt good. On to the next question. And this one is from Dan W. in New Orleans. Maybe there are a lot of people named Dan W. in New Orleans. Well, here it goes. If a player does get seriously ill and sues, what's the biggest challenge to winning the lawsuit? Another good question from Dan. There would be a lot of challenges. And to oversimplify it a bit, you can think about the basic elements of a possible lawsuit here being duty, breach, causation, harm, which, by the way, was also the name of my band in high school. But to break it down in even simpler terms, we'd be looking to see what standard of care did the school owe, in other words, did they breach a duty they had to the athlete? And if they did breach the duty, did it cause the athlete harm? So what challenges does that present? Well, harm should be relatively easy to prove. The athletes who get sick will be the ones who sue. But one of the key questions will be, what is the reasonable standard of care given that we're in the middle of a wildly uncertain pandemic? Part of the answer might be to look at what other conferences and schools are doing and say that sets the reasonable standard of care. 
In other words, it's unreasonable to play college football in the middle of a pandemic, given that so many other conferences have canceled games. So if something goes wrong, it would be easier to blame the conference and school leaders for doing what they did, which was riskier than what everyone else did. Now, you can also argue that reasonableness has to be determined by looking at particular states. One state might be safer than the other based on infection rates. So you can't necessarily look at other conferences. You have to look at schools in the same state. For example, if you're a football player from Iowa State and you get seriously ill during the football season and you sue your school and the Big 12 Conference, you can point to Iowa and the Big 10 shutting down football and say, that was reasonable. That's the standard of care that should have been met and was not because Iowa State decided to continue playing football. Uh, We'd also want to look to see if the non-athlete students are on campus and what restrictions are being put on them to establish what's reasonable. If no other students are on campus, it'll make it a lot harder for schools to argue that it was reasonable to have college football players on campus and playing a contact sport. There's also a really difficult causation issue, particularly given that some of the impacts of COVID may be longer term. But how do you prove you contracted COVID on the football field and not at the coffee shop or when you were in the car with your friends or during that yodeling competition in your dorm room? As we get more advances in contact tracing, it might make causation a little bit easier, but we're not there yet. And finally, as I mentioned earlier, assumption of risk will be a major argument. Athletes know the risks. They should know the risks. The school should be telling them the risks, even if they're not signing a waiver. And the more schools that cancel and the more conferences that cancel because of the risk, there is an argument that it becomes more obvious to all players that there's a risk. And they're given the choice not to play and, again, still maintain their scholarship. Obviously, schools don't want to have to defend themselves in court by saying, we know you got COVID because you played football for us while most other teams were shut down and it caused you harm, but you knew what you were getting into. But that's kind of what part of the defense might be. Okay, next question from Gary in Boston. And I'll be honest, I sort of missed Dan W. But here's Gary's question. If we don't have college football this fall, can the NFL move some of its games to Saturday? Great question. You're no Dan W, Gary, but but it's a it's a dang good question. Let me start by explaining why the NFL does not broadcast football games on Saturdays during most of the season. As most of you probably know, the NFL's TV broadcast deal is different than the other major pro leagues because NFL teams pool all of their broadcast rights to all NFL games other than preseason and sell them as a package to networks. So unlike the NBA or Major League Baseball, there are no local TV broadcasts of regular season and NFL playoff games. In the 1950s, this pooling of broadcast rights was actually held to be an antitrust violation. So the NFL and other pro sports leagues sought and got a limited antitrust exemption from Congress for their TV rights as part of what's known as the Sports Broadcasting Act. And that act covers a number of different things, including the general blackout rules that the NFL has enforced, but it also protects college and high school football 
and says that the NFL loses their exemption if it broadcasts NFL games on Saturdays during college football season or on Friday nights during high school football season. So to Gary's question, if there are no college football games this season, there's a pretty good argument that the NFL could move some of its games to Saturday. And if there's no high school football, it could also move some games to Friday night. We shall see. Next one, Sir Fozzie asks, and I remember when he was just Fozzie. Now he's Sir Fozzie. What a world. If a conference has canceled football this fall, can one of their schools switch conferences this year so that it can play? Well, this is the Nebraska question. Last week, Nebraska said it planned to play despite the fact that its conference announced that it was not playing football this fall. And the Nebraska head coach said earlier this week, I feel 100% certain that the safest place for our players in regards to the coronavirus is right here, where there's structure, where there's testing, and where there's medical supervision. I'll allow him to say 100% here because I assume this is on a scale of 1% to 110%. So I think he's saying he's not completely certain, but I'm not certain about that. But that specific Nebraska question got answered when they changed their tune and their chancellor said they are fully committed to the Big Ten. But what if they change their mind again? Or what if another school tries to jump conferences? Can they? Well, let's start with some context. After the realignment chaos from last decade, with schools jumping from conference to conference and leaving the Big Ten with 14 schools, the Big 12 with 10 schools, the Atlantic Coast Conference with Louisville, which is one of my favorite Atlantic Coast cities, and then lawsuits by conferences against schools that left. The conferences and the TV networks wanted to ensure stability. One way they got that was by negotiating long-term contracts. For example, the Big 12 schools agreed to a 99-year deal in 2012. Conferences also agreed to what's known as a grant of rights, which essentially gives the schools media rights to the conference for the term of the deal. So if a school tried to leave the conference, it theoretically could, but its TV rights and revenue would stay with the conference which would make it prohibitively expensive for the school to leave. So under normal circumstances, schools are basically locked into their conferences legal and financially, but these aren't normal circumstances. So it's possible, depending on the language of the conference agreements or bylaws, that a school could make an argument that they can leave the conference at least for this year if their conference opts not to have a football season. It's unlikely they would join another conference, but they could try to play a season as an independent or argue they have a right to. It, it may end up being a moot point, but we'll see. And keep in mind, it's not out of the question that a conference could permit individual schools to play, even if the conference is canceling its games. That's exactly what's happening with the Big South and the Southland conferences. The Southland conference, for example, canceled fall sports, but football teams can still play non-conference games. And one of their schools, Houston Baptist, plans to play its three scheduled non-conference games, including one at Texas Tech on September 12th. I doubt we'd see that type of arrangement with the Power 5 conference, but it's possible. Okay, next question. This one is from Rick in California. Is spring football possible? And what are the challenges to moving college football to the spring? Another great question, and frankly reminds me of the questions Dan W. used to send me. Uh, It feels like a lifetime ago. 
And this raises a lot of issues. The timing of the season, the injury risks, the impact on the fall 2021 football season. What does it mean about scholarship limits and recruiting? How does it affect the NFL draft, TV rights, potential conflicts with college basketball, and a lot of other things. And I'm going to use this as the first cliffhanger in between the lines history. And I'm going to touch on most of those issues in part two of the Why Is This Thus podcast. But I will answer the NFL draft issue. What we do know is, according to the NFL CBA, Roger Goodell can move the draft as far back as June 2nd on his own. If he wants to move it back further than that, he has to negotiate with the NFL Players Association, which is certainly doable. So if we do end up with a spring college football season, then the NFL will likely simply push the draft back into later in the summer. And I say simple, but there would obviously be a lot that would have to go into that decision. I'm going to save the rest of the answer for part two, and my special guest will help me answer that question and a lot of other really interesting questions, including will college athletes be able to create a union? Should they? Will we have a college football video game anytime soon? Why is Congress talking so much about college sports? What is this college athlete bill of rights? What are the best sports law movies of all time? And much, much more. So join me next time between the lines.